Good morning and Merry Christmas. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church, and it's the third week of Advent, which is sort of a new tradition here at Twin Lakes Church. Part of Advent is having daily devotional readings, and we wrote a daily devotional book that's free that you can pick up in the lobby. And another part of the tradition is that every single weekend in our services, a different family from the church lights the Advent candle of that week and reads that week's scripture. And so with this week's reading, would you please join me in welcoming the Chiramonti family. people, says the Lord, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service <laughs> has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yeah. <laughs> A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Amen. Let's thank the whole Chiramani family. That was beautiful, you guys. That was awesome. I love it. You know, we, I think we found a new way to say amen in church, and it's yeah, all right? Do I hear a yeah? All right, all right. Well, one of the things I love actually most about making Advent part of our Christmas tradition here at Twin Lakes Church is it does bring in families, right? And, and Christmas is such a family time. Families are a part of the season. In fact, just kind of a quick show of hands, an audience poll. How many of you send out family photographs in your Christmas card every year? Can I see a show of hands? Good. How many of you ever received a family photograph from somebody else? How many of you have ever kind of regretted your choice of family photograph? That you've sent out, right? Well, that brings me to my first point. Uh, there's, there's a new website that I'm sort of almost obsessed with this past week. It's called awkwardfamilyphotos.com. How many of you have seen this uh, site? It's fascinating because people actually post on the site just Christmas card photos that they've received from actual people. And it's hilarious to sort of imagine the backstory behind some of these photos, like uh, this one. And what I love about this <laughs> is apparently no one thought to take a second picture, right? Everybody blinked at the flash, and somebody was like, one, good, we're good, and that's the only option they had. That was going into the card. And then there's this one. We told everyone, wear your best shirt for the picture. And this is how Uncle Billy showed up. It's a blue Hulk Christmas, apparently. 
How many of you have an Uncle Billy in your family? Just be honest. How many of you are sitting next to them right now? No, don't raise your hand. How many of you are Uncle Billy in your family? All right, I thought so. I thought we had a few of you. How about this one? It's a goth family Christmas. I like the joy on their face. Santa looks a little nervous, doesn't he? He just looks a little nervous. I, I debated whether or not to show you this, but I find it personally very hilarious. Look at this. Dad thought the pajama top would make him look silly. Just send that one out. Just send it out. I'm not taking a picture again. Or when you take your family photo, be sure to include your birds of prey. They're part of your family too. I love how the littlest kid knows those birds are sizing him up. He is worried right there. All right, two more. I love this next one. For Christmas, I give you the gift of my flexibility. Merry Christmas, friends. Why? And finally, this one needs no caption. Look at this. Joy. And they're all screaming their heads off. If this is what joy looks like in your household right around now, you may really need what we're talking about today. Grab your message notes. Advent is what Christians call the first four weeks before Christmas. And this morning, I want to talk about finding true comfort and joy. These notes are going to help you follow along with the sermon. There can be so much joy, real laughter at Christmas. But Christmas joy goes even deeper than family photographs and funny sweaters and white elephant gifts. In fact, by the end of this message, you may be surprised at just how deep true Christmas joy goes. And here's why it's important. I heard a great sermon this week from a pastor named David Bisgrove, and I really owe some of the material here in this message to him because he had a great quote. He said, Advent is about how to live between once upon a time and happily ever after. Isn't that a great description? Because that's where we live, between the two Advents. The first Advent, the once upon a time, was Christmas when Christ first came. The second Advent is Christ's return. That's the happily ever after. And so how do we find comfort and joy living between the two? Well, this morning's passage that you heard the Chiramontes read, Isaiah 40, is all about that. In fact, it starts with the line, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, just again, a quick show of hands. How many of you recognize this as the first line of Handel's Messiah? Can I see a show of hands? Very popular way to start this extremely popular musical. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord in the King James Version. It's a beautiful beginning to the Messiah, which is essentially an Advent oratorio. The Messiah is full of scriptures that are prophecies of the first and the second advent of Christ. And it all starts this way. There's always such a, a hush of anticipation as the orchestra does its overture and the audience gets quiet. 
And then the pianist begins to play the first few bars of this song, and the tenor comes out and affirms that God wants comfort for his people. And to sing us just the very beginning of the Messiah, would you please welcome Ali Falk and Christian Purcell right now. Wonderful. Wow. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Great! But comfort them from what? Well, remember, the original readers of the prophecies of Isaiah were people who, because they had rebelled against God for centuries, were eventually exiled. They were removed. God allowed them to be captive hundreds of miles from their home to Babylon. They were distant from the good life they used to know. They were facing an uncertain future. They were miserable. They felt guilty about their sins that had gotten them there. But here he says, there is deep comfort because there is one coming, the Messiah. 
And wrapped up in this promise of a Messiah, there are four sources of comfort and joy that if you really understand these things, really believe them today, they will absolutely change the way you go through everything tough in your life right now. No matter what guilt or grief or great challenge you face, jot this down. Number one, God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. Smithsonian Magazine uh, recently did an article on George Frederick Handel's masterpiece that you just heard part of, The Messiah, and, and I loved it. The article talked about the great backstory to The Messiah. You may not know this. It was first performed not in London or Paris or Rome, but in Dublin, and not even at a church at the Dublin Music Hall. Why there? Well, Handel wanted to premiere it in the then impoverished Dublin as a benefit concert for the huge debtor's prison there, a debtor's prison. In those days, if you were in debt and you couldn't pay the debt off, there was no option of bankruptcy or something. You were thrown into prison for life if need be, and the money from the premiere of the Messiah literally paid the debts of hundreds of prisoners from these dark halls. Set them free because their debts have been paid by somebody else. And I love that because that's exactly what the Messiah came to do. He paid the debt of all of us, all of our sin, so we could be set free from our prison of shame and guilt and estrangement. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her, her hard service has been completed. Her sin's been paid for. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now hold on here just a second, because at first this doesn't seem to make sense. At first it sounds like by going into exile, they paid for all their sins. Now what this means is their punishment, their discipline is over. But if you keep reading Isaiah, the one who paid for their sins is the Messiah. Because later in the same book of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 53, it says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Upon who? Upon this one who is coming, whose advent we await. Next verse talks about it. Verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. He's saying, watch out. Because God is coming. He's on his way. Again, you see this, this hint of future Christian theology here. 600 years before Christ, the Messiah is going to be God. The Messiah is going to be the Lord. And here's something I think is really amazing about this. Actually, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these words are said to be about John the Baptist. He was the one. He was the voice the voice calling out in the wilderness saying, there is one coming after me who is the Messiah. And when he saw Jesus, the gospel say, he said, he's the one. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who will show that God's grace is greater than all the sins of mankind all lumped together. His grace is greater than your sin. That sin you're thinking of right now. It's been paid for. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, you have no idea what I've done. <laughs> but God knows. And what these verses are all about is that nothing is going to keep God from bridging that distance between him 
and you. Let me show you how passionate God is about reaching you. It says, check this out. In fact, read this verse out loud with me. Let's all read this together. Ready? Here we go. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. That means that God will move heaven and earth to get to you. And we've got his word on it. It says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. His grace is greater than all your sin. He wants to come and cover your sins and forgive you and wash away all your uncleanness. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He has promised it. And that leads us right into the second point that we can get for comfort and joy out of these verses. God's promise lasts longer. God's grace is greater and God's promise of a Messiah and of comfort and of joy and of restoration lasts longer. I love this part because it's one of the points where Isaiah is chosen by God to say something and he goes, what am I supposed to say? Uh, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's what he's supposed to cry out. And we all need to hear this. All men are like what? Grass. And all their what? Glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands, what? Forever. You know what he's saying here? He's saying two words. Glory fades. Say that with me. Say glory fades. Glory fades. You are not saying this with very much conviction. Uh, let me hear you one more time. Glory fades. In October, we were with the Twin Lakes Church group in Greece and in Turkey, walking in the footprints of uh, Paul and of John. And I, I got to tell you something. The poignant truth of that, that glory fades, was no mer nowhere more evident uh, to me. We went to places like this, Delphi. This was the holiest place in all of Greek culture, all of Greek religion and government for centuries. You had to do all kinds of things just to get close to this mountain and to get up into the temple to hear what the oracle had to say to you. Commoners couldn't go up here. Only kings could. And even then, they had to give massive treasuries of offerings to hear what the oracle had to say. And today, it's in ruins and school kids climb all over it. Or Athens, the Acropolis, you know, the home of Socrates and Aristotle and Pythagoras and the whole idea of democracy all ruins. Beautiful ruins, but ruins. It was the center of the world. And now it's haunted by cats and lizards, you know. We went to Laodicea. This is a fascinating city. It was at the time the most richest, the most powerful city on the planet. It's mentioned in the Bible in Revelation chapter 3 as being so rich they didn't even think they really needed God. And that's, that was the personality of the city. They were so rich that in the first century, an earthquake devastated this region, leveled Laodicea, and the Laodicean government was offered by the Roman government some subsidies to reconstruct their building after the earthquake. And they were the only city in the Roman Empire ever in history that said, uh, no thanks. Actually, don't need your money. We are so rich, we can rebuild after the earthquake without even denting our pocketbooks, and we'll make the city better than it was before. And they did. But for Hundreds and hundreds of years, this rich and powerful city has been lost under dirt. 
Only in the last 10 years have archaeologists begun to unearth its ruins. Everything you see in these pictures of Laodicea was hidden. People didn't know it was there. It was under dirt and dust until just a few years ago, again showing that man's glory fades. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. He's saying all these kingdoms are oppressing you. They are not going to last, but God's word will outlast them. Now, let me ask you, did that happen? Did God's word outlast all the kingdoms that were oppressing the people 2,600 years ago? Did they? Yeah, absolutely. None of them are left. None of them. But God's word is still here. And I got to tell you something very personal. Not only do kingdoms fade, you fade. (laughs) And I fade. Do you believe that to be true? In fact, why don't you turn to one another? and say, glory fades. Just go ahead and go, glory fades, but it's not personal. Just say that to one another. Glory fades. It just does. And present company is not excluded, right? I want to show you this. I I was so surprised, shocked, speechless last weekend when I walked into this service, and I looked down, and this whole first row right here is filled with about seven or eight people that I knew in high school. And most of them I had not seen since we graduated from high school. And they all decided to show up. Some of them flew down from Seattle just to surprise me. And I was, I was literally speechless, just absolutely stunned. Luckily, I recognized one of them, my friend Mark McCoy, that I had seen several times since high school. And then once I got the context, I realized, oh, oh the rest of these people must be from that group that they, we were part of in high school. And miraculously, I remembered each one of their names. Every so, that was a miracle because I can't even remember my middle child's name half the time. Honest to goodness. And then afterwards, we went all out to lunch together. It was, it was a ton of fun. We were all like on the newspaper staff and cross country and stuff together. You know, we were those kind of nerds. But we, uh, we had a ton of fun. But here's why I bring this up. This is a picture of us all. This is the group that surprised me. Now, this is not recent. This was 35 years ago when we were seniors in high school. Yeah, I know. I'm the one in the middle. Not in the white dress. That's not me. But I'm right next to her, the one with the the black afro, right? And now here is us after church last weekend at the Crow's Nest, more or less the same exact crowd, right? And I bring this up because glory fades. This is my point. All our glory was as the grass of the field, and the sun's been shining down on this field for a long time, right? But this is Isaiah's point here. He's saying these promises of a Messiah to people in exile, they sound so, so kind of ephemeral. They sound like, oh, those are just words, right? They're words some preacher's preaching. They're words on some scroll some piece of paper somewhere and our enemies have flesh and blood and our enemies have wood and stone and metal but Isaiah is saying trust me the word of God will outlast your enemies who seem so much more real to you right now and they did and the same thing is true of you right now The promises of God, that God's going to make all things right and God's going to be with you, they may sound like so many words out of the mouth of a preacher, so many words just on a piece of paper. So what? Because your opposition, your enemy has flesh and blood and metal and wood and stone and it's a real bank account with real numbers and these promises are just words. 
But Isaiah is saying, take it from me. The promises will outlast all those things that seem so much more substantive to you. God's promise is for real forever. And part of it, do I hear a yeah? yeah? Thank you. And part of, you know what, part of Advent is just kind of quieting ourselves, right? So much of Advent is about those promises. It's about lighting a candle and quieting our souls so we can hear his promises. So we can hear things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Listen, when your fridge breaks two weeks before Christmas, when your marriage is stressed, when your kids won't sleep, when your car won't start, when all you can see is disease or divorce or disaster, those are the moments you need to remember his promise like, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been the called according to his purpose. You know, listen, this is, listen, this is why I put several of these verses on page three of your notes. Flip over there for just a second and look at it. It says, promises from God for your 2015. I want to just ask you, put these up somewhere for the next year where you're going to see them. Cling to them. Because you know what? This might surprise you. God does not want you to be freaking out. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. That means don't freak out. I used to think it was spiritual to freak out. God wants you to be comforted because God's grace is greater. God's promise lasts longer. And third, God's power is stronger. God's power is stronger than any problem you can possibly face. Now look at this, this picture of God's power that's painted starting in verse 10. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. In other words, let everybody hear what you have to say. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with what? Power. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Wow. A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, amazing person. You gotta learn more about this guy. There was a best-selling book last year all about him. He was a pastor and a writer in Germany during the 30s and the 40s when the Nazi party was coming to power. And he literally, as a, an evangelical Christian pastor, would get on the radio, would get in his pulpit and go, the nation needs to see what these Nazis are. He delivered national Sunday morning sermons. And in the middle of one of his sermons, the Nazis stormed the control room of the radio station and pulled the plug on his microphone. And he became part of a plot to attempt to overthrow Hitler. And he was arrested for that and put in prison. He was on death row in a Nazi prison. And he knew he would not escape. And he didn't. He was actually put to death by the Nazis. But his writings are amazing because he was, he was actually in prison in Germany over Christmas, 1944. And so he, he wrote a lot of thoughts specifically about Advent in prison and how it can bring hope to us. And in one of these, he says, we have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear 
that God's coming should arouse in us, that the God of the universe draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. Don't you love that? That captures what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, do you realize who it is that's coming? He's so powerful. And you know why this is important? Because I, here's how I can get Christmas wrong if I'm not careful. I can shrink Jesus. I can sanitize Jesus. I can safetyize Jesus. Until it gets to the point where he's so small and so meek and mild that it's almost like Mr. Rogers in a robe, right? And that's cool. That's comforting if everything's going well for you. If everything's going great, then little baby Jesus in, in fluffy down comforters is like, that's cool. But you know what? If you're in exile, if you're in pain, if you're oppressed, if you're depressed, you need a mighty king. You need a king who's so mighty that he can level mountains and lift up valleys and change the course of rivers so that you know, no, his power is greater even than the power of these things that are facing me right now. Do I hear a yeah from the church today? All right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer got hope from this. He knew even the might of the Nazis was like grass and would wither and die and fade, and it did. And the power of God did outlast it. And even though Bonhoeffer knew he was on death row and wouldn't survive to see the Nazis fall, he wrote this to his fiancée one Christmas. I love these words. He says to her, we, we ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot. In other words, why is this bad thing happening to me? And we're assailed by the question, why? And then when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can barely stand it, the Christmas message comes to us and tells us our ideas are wrong. Our, our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger. He is right here. And no matter what man tries, they cannot circumvent God, who is secretly revealed as Lord and rules the world and our lives. I love that. This is why it's, you, you have to be very careful not to miss the message of power during Christmas. Like Luke 2 says, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and first it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then the angels first say, glory to God in the highest. And then they say, peace on earth. You need to get his glory first to see how that can give you peace. And by the way, just a little kind of a peek into the future here. I'm so stoked that in January, we've got a new four-week series called Empowered. It's all about God's power for you, how you can plug into it, and how God's power in your life says, with God, all things are possible. With God, all obstacles are overcomable. And that starts in January. So God's grace is greater than my sin. God's promise lasts longer than anything. God's power is stronger than my foes. And finally, God's love is closer than I can imagine. In verse 11, Isaiah's just described this awesome power of God, right? He can lift up valleys, lay low mountains, but then he says he's tender too. He tends his flock. Look at this. Don't miss this. He tends this flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those who have young. You know what this verse reminds me of? You know those Ann Gettys pictures of strong men's arms holding little babies? 
True confession, I read this verse when I was studying this week, and I just started crying, like tears just rolling down my face. And my wife walks into the room at the time, and she's like, what's wrong? And I said, just the beauty of this verse reminds me of when my own kids were little. And some of you have babies. Some of you have brand new babies. And you know how special it is when you hold them right next to you like this, right? And how you could be having a rough day, but the best part of your day is when you get to hold your little ones close to you. And that, that, that happens so fast that they're, that they're grown up. So fast. But I'll tell you something else. Those of you who have grown kids will resonate with this. My kids are grown now, right? We have two that are out of the house married. And we have one who's 16, junior in high school, living at the house. Whenever any of them give me a call or see me at church and run up to give me a hug or text me, they're grown that is still the best part of my day. But you know what this verse is saying? It's saying you're the best part of God's day. It's saying he laid low mountains and he raised up valleys to get to you, not to judge you, but so that he could tenderly care for you. He's singing over you. You are his joy. He longs to hold you. He did all of that for one reason. He came as a baby because he wants to hold us as babies. You know, he appeared first to the shepherds because he's our shepherd and wants to hold us like his little lambs. And this is why I worship God, not out of fear, but out of awe that he would do this for me. And the more you internalize this, the richer your Christmas and your life will be. I want to wrap up the message with a, with a powerful story that I just heard a couple of days ago. And I want to show you an actual video of these people. There's an 87-year-old woman named Gladys Wilson who is in the late stages of advanced Alzheimer's disease. And this resonated with me because that's where my mom is too. But Gladys is far past where my mom is. Gladys now is completely unresponsive. She can't say a single word, not one word, ever. In fact, she's non-communicative behaviorally, too. She, she doesn't reach out to people. She never touches anybody. She doesn't look at anybody in the eye. She just sits like that. That Her Alzheimer's disease has caused her to not be able to communicate at all and just withdraw into her own little shell. You got that picture? But Gladys has a wonderful therapist who works with her and the other seniors in her care facility. Her name is Naomi File. And Naomi says the most effective therapy for Gladys is singing songs that Gladys knew when Gladys was a little girl, specifically songs about how the great God loves her so much. Songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves the little children. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now, Naomi's sessions with these seniors last a long time, but I want you to see the miracle that happens in the last couple of minutes of her session with Gladness the other day. Remember, Gladys is nonverbal and is unresponsive, but watch the screen. Look at this. Feel safe and warm? Yes? Can you sing with me? We've got the whole 
He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the mothers and the fathers. He's got the mothers and the fathers in his hands. He's got the mothers and the fathers in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Isn't that remarkable? Just absolutely amazing. What does that show you? So you could hear all of this and just think, well, these are nice sentiments, but part of me kind of doubts that it's really true. I don't know whether to believe this. Well, I'll tell you what to believe. Believe this, that when you internalize these truths as your own, that God's grace is greater than your sin, that his promise is more reliable and lasts longer than any thing that's held against you, that his power is stronger, that his love is closer, when you go, no, that's true, and you plant those seeds in your life, and you keep nurturing those seeds your whole life, when you, listen, when you enter what for you is your valley of the shadow of death, it will make all the difference, because you'll know to the core of your being after all the glory withers, after all the greatness fades away, you'll know the promise and the power and the love and the grace that outlasts all of that. See, this is the so what to all this. So all these prophecies are in there about the Messiah. The so what is when you really believe it is true, you have comfort and joy beyond your wildest in imagination, and even beyond this life itself, even in the midst of all the rush and crush of Christmas. Because Christmas is God shouting to earth, I love you. I've got you in my hands, and I want you back in my family. Now look up here for just a moment. I know the, the last fill-in has been filled in, but before you put the notes away, let me give you one more point of application. When you really believe these things, you know what else? You are going to want to do for others what Naomi did for Gladys. When you really believe in God's love, you're going to want so bad to do whatever you can. Take people by the hand, speak tenderly to them, sing to them, serve them, whatever, whatever you have the gifts to do, to, to tell them, he's got you and me in his loving hands. And let me just say, from the bottom of my heart, there's a couple of great opportunities for you to, to do that, to kind of play the role of Naomi to Gladys. One, you heard the guys talk about, is the Angel Tree Project. When you give a present, you're giving more than just a present. You are planting seeds in the children, in the nursing care residents who receive those gifts, that God cares for them, that God's got their back. And there's a second way that you can do this, we have eight Christmas services next week. Three of them are our regular service times. It's kind of a Christmas 
mini concert. It's going to be amazing. Don't be late for it. The great music's going to start right at the beginning. And then we have five Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve Eve candlelight services. And you have in your bulletins and stacks more back at the information desk, these information cards. When you take these invite cards and you bring a friend to these services, they will hear and see that God loves them so much. Listen, please invite your friends. I have found that anybody will come to church on Christmas. Non-religious people will come to church on Christmas because it's kind of the thing to do. And when you tell them, hey, it's going to be like a mini concert. We've got James Durbin from American Idol, and we've got the Christmas choir, and we've got all kinds of great things. Yeah, can I hear the crowd say, yeah, yeah. And you say, it's going to be great. They're going to want to come. And when you talk about Christmas Eve and you say it's going to be candles, it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to, there's going to be a recording artist and a sand artist, they're going to want to be here. They will not say no, and it'll be your way of being Naomi to Gladys and saying, God loves you and I love you so much. You're safe and warm here with the Lord. And it might just change their lives forever as they find the comfort and the joy of Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, first, I just want to thank you for these amazing people here in this church that I love so much. And I thank you that you love them even more. And you loved us enough to send your son as our Messiah to forgive all of our sins. What a deal. And then to give us these promises and power and love that are stronger than anything. And God, I pray that this week we would just soak in those truths and that we'd be motivated to bring others to Christmas so that they can hear this amazing message. God, I pray that there'll be people in heaven because of what happens here at TLC this next week because we cared enough. And I just want to ask you to bless everybody's health, bless our safety even in shopping and in traveling this week. May we, in the middle of all the rush and all the activities, make room for you in our lives through these Advent readings and prayers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody say, yeah. 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 All right.